Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Lee Carlo, and I'm joined only by Chapin Hemingway today as Jeremy Fisk is awaiting the birth of his firstborn. And uh, so we're very excited about that. I guess that's a good reason to not have him here. I know he's disappointed because he had a lot of things to say about Richard Jewell, Clint Eastwood's newest movie that we'll be discussing. Um, so I guess I kind of question where his priorities really lie. Well, if I he mean, had a lot to say, I, I, you'd think he'd be here. I just feel like I mean, any excuse to get off the podcast these days is acceptable. I mean, Jesus. Well, that, I mean, come on. That, don't say that. I mean, his, you know, his daughter is going to be here forever. There's only going to be one Richard Jewell podcast. That's true. Although we will, we will um, give him a chance to share his feelings with us in a later episode. Yes, I think that that would be appropriate. So we're going to talk about Richard Jewell, and then we're going to wrap everything up with our top five performances in Clint Eastwood movies. Let's get a new tape going. All right, Richard, here's what we're going to do. We need a voice exemplar. I want you to say into this phone, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Richard, you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. You always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body. Jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. You're a suspect. You don't talk. I talk. Say it. I don't talk. This might be the only way to clear your name. I want you to say there's a bomb in Centennial Park. All right, Chapin. So I have a bit of a long-winded intro here, um, but I will say that, you know, we I think we just call that an intro. (laughs) Yes. We we rarely ever uh, discuss politics or anything on this podcast. That's not what we're here for. Uh, But I did find it kind of interesting today as I was listening to some of the testimonies during this impeachment debate. Um, And you really do have a lot of time during the day. Well, I was driving. It's on the radio. <laughs> but anyway, I thought it was interesting that I was able to draw a parallel between much of what was discussed there during those uh, testimonies and what I wanted to ask you guys about Richard Jewell. Um, and that has to do with facts and kind of the responsibility to adhere to them. So before I get to my question, I, I do want to backtrack a little bit to recap Clint Eastwood's semi-recent career as a director. Um And I'll preface that by just saying that most of Eastwood's movies probably deserve a revisit for me. Uh, So anything I kind of point out about them now and throughout this podcast is going to be very much based on my initial opinions. I don't want to have to keep saying I need to see this movie again. Um, But let's go back to 2003. We'll start there when Clint Eastwood directed Mystic River. It's a movie that I loved. Um, I know Jeremy really liked it. Chapin, I don't think you were as high on it, but... No. That, that doesn't matter. Uh, then after that came his Best Picture winner, Million Dollar Baby, which I also really liked. Uh, and then following that, he made Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima, Changeling, Gran Torino, Invictus, <laughs> Hereafter, J. Edgar, Jersey Boys, American Sniper, Sully, 1517 to Paris, The Mule, and then finally this year, Richard Jewell. Yeah. So I have varying opinions on all these movies, but I think my opinion of Eastwood as a director has always had always been very high because I always thought that he could overcome sometimes significant flaws in his movies by just simply telling a really great story really well. So here's my question. Mm -hmm. Of those 16 movies I listed, nine are based on true stories or real events, including Richard Jewell. So what is a filmmaker's responsibility to adhering to the facts when a movie is based on true stories or real events? And, and how, does that, how does that or how can that impact the storytelling? And when you're looking at it from just this purely cinematic perspective. That's a great question. And I understand why you're bringing it up with this film, but I think we'll wait to discuss that. I, I think it's a great question. I mean, really, his last film, a couple movies have been, I mean, it's been heavily based on um, since 2003 on, on real life events. Um, and so it's, it, it's a great question to ask. I, I'd love to know why uh, one thing we might want to, you know, explore is why we think Eastwood's suddenly interested in all this stuff suddenly being in the last, <laughs> right. you know, 15 years, but, um, yeah, but nine of his last 16 movies. So yeah, more than so half. It's, it's, yeah. it's significant. Um, and 
I, I listen, I think um, I was thinking about this in reflecting on Richard Jewell and I and I, I was wondering why why do we gravitate toward these real life stories? Why, you know, when you put based on a true story at the beginning of a film, why is that something that's positive? You know, like we're as as fans of film and 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 pe- people who used to who make film um, you know, we're, we're interested in creating something that then elicits emotion, you know, like there's an artifice with film. There always will be, even in documentary film, there's an artifice, you know, like we're, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're using techniques to garner emotion. Um, and it's not always, it's not always going to make you, it's not always going to be, you know, pitch perfect accurate. Um, but I got, it got, it got me thinking. And I think, you know, there is something powerful about a real life story, um, and there is something also about revisiting these moments in time that, you know, maybe we're not, you know, very um, sort of explored in a lot of detail, you know, when they did happen or, um, you know, kind of have an interesting backstory or, or behind the scenes um, in the case of Richard Jewell. Uh, but you know, like I, I, I think that there's something powerful about a real life story that you don't, you just don't get with um, a film that you create. And I mean, as a filmmaker, I, I would feel very limited and 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 hampered by a real life story. I think, I think it would, I would, I would be always conscious of how far inevitably I would be straying from the real life story. Um, and to what degree that uh, that affects, you know, is honest or dishonest. Um, I, I, that's why I kind of, if I would ever do some kind of adaptation or, or biography or anything like that, I would want to do something that was more inspired by instead of based on a true story. Um, but I do think, like, there is something interesting. Like, we all kind of watched as that flight that Captain Sully was piloting crashed into the ocean and then everybody was saved and it was this heroic moment and then there's this really interesting backstory which of course i only know from the film and those things are really interesting and and the fact that they are these moments in history much like with richard jewell that are in that are sort of noteworthy and memorable but i you know we don't quite remember the details of i think that kind of engages you on in um right off the bat yeah i mean i think it's i think you kind of ha- might have like three school. Oh, I'm sure there's more, but I just can think off the top of my head of kind of three schools of, you know, what you're doing when you're making a, a true story. And there's, you know, the, I think there's like a cathartic aspect to people being able to revisit things like that. I mean, I don't know if you'll, you'll take a movie like Sully, for example, or maybe, maybe even Richard Jeweler, American Sniper. Like you can kind of look back on that and just feel like, you know, okay, it's you can. It's sort of like a way of you know getting closure on something if it's a tragic story or just recelebrating something if it's a heroic story. And I think there's something that can be cathartic about that. Um, I also think there's this like, and this may be the thing that works the most because it allows you kind of the storytelling freedom. It's the truth is stranger than fiction idea, you know, mm. which I think Changeling is a good example of. Um, and then I think. What's interesting about Richard Jewell, at least for me, is that I don't remember this at all. I mean, I was mm. 12 years old in 1996, so I don't know. Maybe I should have been more aware of what was going on. Maybe I was, but it was nowhere in my consciousness. If you had if you had brought this up to me before anything about this movie came up, I'd feel like I was hearing it for the first time. So that having been said, with this movie, I feel like I could have gone into it and just believed whatever the director told me. And with that in mind, I feel like there's where there's an opportunity for some creative freedom, but he Eastwood doesn't have the benefit of every audience member being me in this case. And I think that's the case with a lot of these true stories. And my question sort of stems from that is that I think a lot of times the directors feel more obligated to be true to the facts and true to the story or at least true to a portion of the story than they are 
obligated to make sure they make a good movie or tell in tell a good structured story. Yeah, and, I got you. And I just think that that can be really detrimental to a movie sometimes. And I, you know, I wish I know there's directors that have you know pointed. I mean, the the famous you know one is Fargo, where the Coens wrote at the beginning that it's a true story when in fact it wasn't because they can. And the other thing that came to mind was Tarantino with um, Inglorious Bastards. You know, he was telling historical fiction, but it was, you know, he kills Hitler at the end because he can, because he's right. telling a story. He's telling his story. And I think those are two really great movies in comparison to some, what I would argue are misses from Eastwood, especially recently, you know, 15 to 17 to Paris. I don't even know if we should get into but Sully, I think, is a good example where, you know, it just was maybe not enough there. Maybe he didn't do enough with the story. He just relied too much on the facts. Hmm. And then we'll get into Richard Jewell a little bit more. But, you know, I think that's the danger that filmmakers run into when it comes to these true stories. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, if I just, just sort of reacting immediately to what you're saying, I, I think the real creativity in adapting these real stories is not changing the events or really anything factual about what occurred, but rather the the moments that we don't know, the blind spots for us, like what were the conversations like between Richard Jewell and his lawyer and his mother um, behind closed doors when the media um, was waiting outside for him, or, um, and in this case was Sully, which I actually quite enjoyed. I actually really liked really? Sully. Yeah, I really liked it. Um, oh, man. But the the sort of the sort of behind the scenes drama with that, I mean, you know, the the conversations between the pilots, like there's some record, I assume. I mean, maybe you know, you you never know. I mean, there's got to be some creative exploration. But to, but I, I get what you're saying. Like to a certain extent, you know, you you sit down, and you want to write this story, and I mean, unfortunately, movies don't really work like this in terms of the economics and how the financing comes together and how you choose what film you want to make. But you know, you sit down and write a script about a true story, and you realize you got to change so much of it that it's no longer the story anymore. Then you say, you know, maybe mm-hmm. we'll just maybe this will just be an inspiration. Maybe we'll just take this. You know, well, I'm not really interested in this. I'm not really interested in exploring this real story. What I'm interested in is the themes that this story provokes in me. And I think that that's a real that's a real thing to to talk about and and uh, and something I, I feel pretty passionately about because um, I, I you know I, I I'm trying to I because you know my loyalties tends to come down on the side of films like I think what you're saying like you want to your your job is to make the best film right. possible I agree and that's with what that. we're here to critique yeah yeah. But but really, my I, I do think that you know there is some, and I think you may get into the, the some of the controversy with Richard Jewell, but also like imagine a character like Sully, where um, you know he's a hero, but then in in the film, you know he like, you know what if you admit, misrepresented him? You know the guy's still alive, he's still in he's still somewhat in the public eye, and and I think it would be a real a real kind of crime to misrepresent someone like that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I maybe we'll get a little bit more into this later, but I, I, I think with a movie like Richard Jewell, like I would have loved to see a little bit more um, reverence put on both sides of this story as opposed to just the very obvious good and bad. But I'm interested in those behind-the-scenes things too, and I think those can be really... Effective. I mean, that puts a lot of onus on the writers and directors of these movies to make sure that they are accurate, semi-accurate, but cinematic and entertaining. And I mean, a backroom conversation, uh, you know, uh, is or a, or a behind-the-scenes conversation between Richard Jewell and his lawyer is only interesting if it's about something interesting and if it's if it's driving the plot forward. And not to say that Richard Jewell didn't do that, but I, I also think that some of that behind-the-scenes stuff was lacking in this movie. And the other piece that I think is important, and maybe it's a little easier for directors to do, is they, they have to recreate the significant moments, the moments that we do remember, in a way that is, like I said, cathartic or entertaining or, or you know, fascinating when it's a, a changeling-type way, that truth is stranger than fiction type of movie. And... Mm-hmm. I thought 
that was okay here. But like, of course, we're all watching this movie, waiting for the explosion, waiting for him to find the bomb, waiting for it to explode, waiting to see how that whole scene plays out. It's just like in Sully, and that you know he does it a couple different ways in Sully. But we're all waiting for the plane crash and we're all waiting for the hijacking in 15 to 17 to Paris, mostly because I knew that was at the end and I couldn't wait for that movie to end. But, um, jeez, <laughs> Dave, and have you seen that movie? No, but I mean, Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about it. The acting is so bad. It's, it's obviously the real, uh, the real people who play themselves in it, but it's, well, can I- you can tell. Can I comment on what you're saying a little bit? Maybe that'll get yep. us more into details. Yep. So I think that's a really interesting point, and I and and I uh, one thing I want to say is that I I do think that um, to some extent I you know you and I are sort of on an island of just uh, on a desert island, just you and me as fans of Changeling. I don't know anybody else who likes that movie, but I really enjoyed it. I watched it on your recommendation, and I I loved it. I thought it was so good. Um, but that reminded me when you brought that up that like something about, you know, telling a real life story like that gives you another window into a different time, you know? Um, and what things were like back then in a really detailed way and the way, you know, women weren't believed, et cetera, the, the, the penal system, um, the, 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 the judicial system. Um, and, and you got a little bit of that with Richard Jewell, but what I thought was so, what I thought was interesting is you're, you're looking back and it's far, far enough back. Um, it's, it's nearly what? 20, 25, 25 years. years yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel like it, but it doesn't feel like it, but you look back and it doesn't look like that different of a time, but it really is. And the, the main thing I of course thought about while watching was that this is a pre nine 11 event, you know, where, where totally. I, I'm a, glad bomb, you're bringing this up. a bomb going off at the Olympics and, you know, killing one person or I guess two people died because of the explosion um, was a huge deal and a big news story. And I mean, nowadays we've got, you know, those, you know, many, many more times of people like that, that seem to die every week in a, in a mass shooting. And, um, well, not just that, but like the portrayal of the lax security correct this event like they're like it's just a backpack it's got beer in it and then like that would never happen now no 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 way and and to me so that was it was interesting in in the sense that like okay this is a different time i this is an this is interesting to look back and be reminded of that and and how you know those those events leading up before 9-11 were these cable news like phenomenons and like it was like the way nothing else to talk about but these like this seemingly you know relatively minor event in the grand scheme of things but it also made me think you know uh, in more negatively like this really isn't that significant of a story you know like what why why did Eastwood decide to make this film now like it doesn't it doesn't feel relevant to me right. really at all it feels kind of as if it were made the year after the event took place, you know? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really reflect, um, in any sort of meaningful way on, on, you know, what's changed in the last 25 years or, um, how this of this particular character is, is, um, relevant or this story is relevant to this this day. And it doesn't, I'm not saying necessarily needs to be, but Eastwood is, and I'm sure we'll get into this more. Eastwood is such a sort of a. I, I was it's been searching for like the last three or four days trying to figure out the best way to describe what I, when Eastwood kind of lets me down. Why he what, what his style is, but he's such a sort of um kind of <laughs> you know just a, a filmmaker who who sometimes just doesn't like care to to. He he's not a dramatic filmmaker in the sense that he he's not like interested in these big kind of like you know significant things happening in film. I'm not really exp- expressing this. No, in the I right get what way, you're saying. But, it's two, but it's two things. Like he, this is what I said before. What's what's so good about his best movies is the storytelling, and it's mm-hmm. the simplest form. Like I always remember being like how, Million Dollar Baby was coming out in 2004, ended up winning Best Picture, was getting all sorts of buzz before it came out. And I'm like, how in the hell is this movie going to be this good? 
and then it was because it's a really well-told story. It's not necessarily about boxing. It's a character piece. It's a really intimate and interesting relationship between Clint Eastwood as the trainer for Maggie, uh, played by Hilary Swank. Uh, you have great supporting roles with Morgan Freeman and Jay Baruchel and Anthony Mackie and everybody in it. And it, it just came together really well in kind of the simplest way because it was a good story that he told. And the same can be said about Mystic River and Changeling and Unforgiven. And all his best movies are just really well-told stories and sometimes just very simple ones. Mm-hmm. So that's what he's good at. And then... So I never really needed big set pieces. I never needed anything overly extravagant from him. Sure. But this, you can probably understand, his movies, when they don't work, feel a little rushed, like production-wise. Like they feel like they got scrapped together and they're missing yeah. nuance. They're missing, That's so you know, funny that you say kind that. of the interesting pieces. And we joke all the time about Eastwood, you know, cranking these movies out with eight hours, you know, days and, you know, Jeremy's literally Jeremy's dream to work on an Eastwood movie. And it shows in his movies now. And it didn't used to. We all used to be like, how is he doing this? And now I can tell you how he's doing it. Not making as good a movie. This film was started production in June of this year. (laughs) Yeah, that's nuts. Yeah. I think they when they started the Star Wars that's coming out a week after it, like four years ago. No, that film was rushed as well. But well, okay, for, you get my but, point. Yeah, I do. I do think that's interesting. I mean, we. Um, I know you listen to the Big Picture podcast. Um, they they counted down their uh, not to plug another podcast. Ignore that. Ignore that. Delete. Delete. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they they did their uh, top ten of the, of the decade a couple yeah, uh, a week I or so ago. To that. And they were talking, you know, I think um, as as it was on my list uh, when we did ours, our list in um, last year with Brantley on the 100th episode, they had um, Mad Max Fury Road and they talked about how long that film took to make. I mean, it was yeah. literally in production for like four or five years. Um, and uh, the host was, you know, like you proposed this idea like, you know, maybe maybe films should take that long to make. Like if that's what you get when you spend that kind of time on a movie, Good point. that much thoughtful, um, uh, you know, maybe we should take that long. Um, and so I wonder when <laughs> enter we, the Irishman, <laughs> right? Enter the Irishman, which is, you know, <laughs> which, which I've already are, changed my tune on. But uh, oh, you have at another time oh, no. a little bit. OK, well. So I, my my point being that I, I think um, you think of a you think of a situation like that um, like a long production like that one that doesn't always go smoothly and it's typical for like the media to to paint that as as a bad thing and that the film's in trouble um, and if a shoot goes very smoothly things t- the, the, the reputation proceeds itself that it's a, it was a smooth sailing film. It's going to be good, but you know, you might be right. Like it's easy to point out when a film kind of doesn't live up to its expectations or the people who, who made it, it's like, well, you did make this quite quickly. You know, it's like, it's easy to point a finger at what, what, what might've went wrong. I mean, this film was filmed and completed within like less than six months. Yeah. Um, can we work sort of up to uh, Paul Walter Hauser's performance and his character mm-hmm. in this movie and start with mm-hmm. some of the supporting roles? Um, <laughs> Sam Rockwell plays his lawyer, Walter Bryant. You have Kathy Bates playing his mother. You have Watson John Hamm. Watson Bryant, sorry. What did I say? Walter. Walter, okay. Watson Bryant. Paul you Walter have, Hauser. Right. Um, you have John Hamm playing the FBI agent Tom Shaw and you have uh what's her name Olivia playing Wilde Olivia Wilde playing the uh reporter um did anybody stand out for any one re- for one reason or another for you of those four <laughs> I mean of key supporting actors yeah i mean i think you got to you got to point a finger at Olivia Wilde's way Okay, so let's start there. I mean, I was a bit annoyed by the, you know, potty mouth, I'll do anything to get a story, but then cry at the end <laughs> reporter. Yeah. Um, um, the controversy with, with uh, there her is character controversy is, around her, yeah. is that there's no evidence 
that actual person who was actually dead slept with anybody to get that story and adding that in sort of without any evidence or, or you know, without any truth into into the movie, you know, kind of right. goes into that old trope of sexism in, in film and, you know, she... Yeah. Well, and Olivia Wilde also denied that that's what that scene was implying. Okay, well, that's not I, true. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Um, you know, when she says the hotel room or the car. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have so much of a problem with you know, that whether, you know, whether it's true or not is besides the point, you know, as a matter of fact, I would, you know, I, I, like I said, I'll take any kind of creative liberty that he wants to take in this movie to, you know, add some more layers to it. Um, I just, I, I just thought the, it was such, so on the nose and loud, like the, you know, she's got a, she's got a, uh, a foul mouth. She's kind of sex crazed. She'll do whatever she has to. And then, she walks to the fucking phone booth and then now she's just a changed woman. Like Mm -hmm. that's lazy. I mean, that to me, that character just was another evident piece that this movie was rushed. Um, but my biggest problem was with John Hamm. I mean, is he a bad actor? Is that, or is that where we're at now? Was he just a one hit wonder with Mad Men? Hmm. Did you like him in this? Why didn't you like him? Uh, Again, it's just everything is tepid. It's it's not like he was. I thought he was convincing, but I didn't find his character interesting. I, I didn't find her He's, character interesting. Honestly, I, will I didn't say find that, anybody interesting except Paul Walzelhauser and Sam Rockwell. Yeah. So that isn't to say they weren't good. With, I thought Kathy Bates was good, but she's not. Her I don't understand. Like her character, they didn't do anything with her character. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that's really all there is to say. I mean, the one harsher, well, I guess it's even a, it's not even a critique on John Hamm. I just wonder how he keeps ending up in such poorly written roles, especially as FBI agents. I mean, this is the same character he plays in the town, which is also poorly written. Mm. And I don't know if, like, for some reason, he's just drawn to that, like playing that role, so he seeks out these roles, or if for some reason he's typecast in that way. Um, but you know, it's just, I mean, he took me out of scenes. I mean, this climactic scene at the end of the movie that he just like way overdid and went from just the antagonist to a borderline villain. You You, know, I mean, when they can, he confronts Richard Jewell in the bar at the end there. Well, so that's when he sort of becomes a villain, but he, the scene, uh, the, the final interview scene in the FBI's office is where, and he kind of just like blows up with when, you know, and then gets confronted about the fact that he doesn't have any evidence. That scene, I feel like he just overdid and was just overacting or it was overwritten or whatever it may be. But yeah, that final scene in the coffee shop or the diner bar, wherever that was, where, you know, he still accuses him of being guilty is just like, come on. Like, first of all, do we need that? Like, what is what is this character gaining out of that? What have we learned about this character that makes him so intent on this opinion? Um, but then Sam Rockwell, as he has been known to do, saves that scene a little bit by kind of casually saying, "Well, you're entitled to your opinion." Right. Because um, yeah, he was great. I mean, I don't. I'm never surprised when Sam Rockwell is good in a movie, obviously. But the one thing that was kind of interesting about his role in this is. His character is a little snarky and, you know, quick-witted and uh, does supply some comedy to this movie, as does Paul Walter Hauser. But this movie's not a comedy. And, like, there were moments where I was like, God, I want Sam Rockwell to say something funny again. Because those lines worked so well and I liked them, and, but that wasn't the movie that was being made here. So I almost feel like maybe Sam Rockwell shouldn't have been in this movie because he was kind of playing this character that almost didn't belong in it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot you said there. <laughs> yeah, said focus a lot. on Rockwell. Okay. I, I, it's an interesting comparison with Ham and Rockwell. Like, Sam Rockwell is somebody who brings an energy and a, a, a sort of... Um, 
I don't know, like a je ne sais quoi to his his parts. You know, they're it's they're all a little connected. They're they're they aren't. You know, he, he I, I, there's a lot he has in common with the last time we saw him in um, with that dumb movie that you liked that I didn't. Uh, told, the three of burials of three, oh, yeah. b- burials of <laughs> three billboards of Malachias. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the one he won the Oscar for. But uh, you know, he in a movie like this, which is I don't I hate to say it a little dull. Um, he stands out, and so. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, you know, and like, okay, again, like, like with Eastwood, everything is always sort of well executed, but when there isn't much, you know, when he falls flat, it's just that there isn't much there. There's so it's it, everything just so feels, little to grasp on. Exactly, yeah. there's it's dull, and you're sort of like, well, what? Like, you're waiting for something significant to happen, and so. You know, a, a performance one, oh yeah, like a one-liner from Rockwell works. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It makes you stand out, and so I agree with you about Ham. Like he kind of, but like Ham at least knew what movie he was in. You know, and and so, um, I don't know. Did you did you end up did you see the Mule, the movie he made last year? I never ended up seeing it. No. So like, um, I I actually quite liked it. I didn't go to the theater to see it, but um, Bradley Cooper plays a, a sort of a similar role, and you've got Bradley Cooper fresh off of A Star Is Born. You know, in this role as a, I think he's a DEA agent in that film, and he's chasing Clint Eastwood. And you know, there's nothing significant. He doesn't. He doesn't do anything special in that film either. And so it's like, okay, like this is what he does. He he. I heard, you know, he's Clint Eastwood, so he can get Bradley Cooper, who's probably the hottest, at least at the time, was the hottest actor in the world. And somebody like John Hamm, who's got a storied career as a television actor, to play these sort of minor, insignificant roles. Yeah. Um, all right, so Jeremy uh, just attempted to interrupt our podcast by texting us what his bombshell would have been, and I won't reveal it. I'll let him have uh, have that when he does get to say his piece, but it had to do with Paul Walter oh, wow. Hauser's performance. Um, I, I just looked at it. That's a bombshell. We should... Uh, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll just tease that. Um, I, I thought he was great. I really liked him in this movie. I mean, I don't... I, I think, one... This is, aside from the fact that, like, he looks perfect for this role, take that out of the equation. I think this was really smart to cast someone like him in this movie because you have very recognizable actors elsewhere throughout that we've mentioned, Rockwell, Olivia Wilde, John Hamm, Kathy Bates, but Paul Walter Hauser, we don't really know. Um, I remembered him most from I, Tonya, which was a movie I didn't like, but he was my favorite part of it. Really? In his little role. I thought that character could have been a movie in and of itself. This, like, and delusional in, guy that thinks he's... Um, he's in Black Klansman as well. Right. And I think, if I remember correctly, I don't think I liked him in... Was he kind of, like, the really obvious bad guy in the clan group? I think No, he was, like, the the sort of the inept, dumb... You, you directly talked about this, that, like, the, the clan was not very smart and didn't right. seem so, and like... Right, and that was this guy, right. Okay, so, yeah, so if I remember correctly, I didn't really like him in that, but loved him in I, Tanya, and I'm not sure I've ever seen him in anything else. So I think that that was kind of smart to do that here because this guy, this character, Richard Jewell, is a nobody. Like, this is not somebody that was significant in the world. And, you know, he did something heroic and, you know, everything that followed, followed. And he plays that so well. Like, I mean, he he clearly is, like, kind of dumb and, you know, has some uh, delusions of grandeur, at least in terms of, like, what he's going to do with his career. And I think he plays all of that really well. I think he does the comedy in this character really well without kind of upsetting the tone of the movie. I mean, I think about the line where he (laughs) insists on not (laughs) telling them that he's not a homosexual. Yeah. Um, which was so funny. But, like, those lines he pulled off really nicely. I thought he was great. I really liked him in this movie. I, I yeah. thought he, he made it what it was. He saved it. No, I I, I, I totally agree. I, I think, um, you know, going back to your opening question, knowing what Eastwood did with uh, Chris Kyle and American Sniper, good performance. I actually think a better movie than people get a credit for. But, um you know he's a hero through and through in that film and chris kyle 
the real life Chris Kyle developed kind of a personality and reputation that wasn't completely flattering and in line with that those heroics and they ignore that completely in that film um but here so i was expecting richard jewell to be this kind of like unsung hero and you know you know unblemished but he 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 really does have um he's a layered interesting character and where i think you know uh Olivia Wilde, certainly John Hamm, and to a lesser extent, even Sam Rockwell and Kathy Bates are not, you know, um, they're not sort of uh, typical characters, but they're they're almost sort of they're sort of one dimensional. You know, they serve one purpose. Yeah. Um, he is just this sort of layered, interesting character um, who who does have a lot of sort of who's who's just who isn't as sort of clear as day hero he's he's a he's a complicated guy in a way and his heroics are complicated you know and he's not a you know clear-cut uh his heroics are not clear-cut and but ultimately that makes him a more interesting and and in my opinion more endearing character because he is aware of his flaws and he's a little smarter than you think he is and self-aware than he than you than you initially just you know think of him as being and so it's i think yeah i think he's the best part of the movie for sure well and i think everything you said is correct about the character but i also think that that is kind of the problem with the movie and it's what i alluded to earlier about how i wish this movie was a little bit more willing to take the risk and show both sides of this movie and you know, elaborate on, you know, how the FBI and the media exploited the other sides of Richard Jewell's character. I mean, Mm -hmm. instead, yes, you are shown that Richard Jewell is a complicated person, but we are never for a second doubting his heroism and his innocence. Yeah. Yeah, but they also try a little bit to... They very clearly have him walk away to like go to the bathroom. Then we see, then we cut to a phone call. Then we cut back to him walking back from the bathroom. So we're, it's suggested that we don't know where he was for that moment. But so it, it dabbles, but it doesn't ever really make any effort to suggest that he was guilty of anything. So I just think this movie had an opportunity to do that. And Give your audience some credit. You don't think that if you told this story in a way that brought up some question marks about Richard Jewell that we couldn't still end it in a way where we believe that Richard Jewell is a hero. I just think instead they chose to have the cliched one-dimensional FBI agent that, you know, we learn has jurisdiction because the scene me and Jeremy laughed out loud at where they go through the... Uh, I'm a homicide detective. This is a homicide. Well, I'm the. This is on uh, uh, government property, so this is a government jurisdiction. And then John Hamm tells him, "You'll I'm the FBI." But um, I just think that stuff was sort of very one-dimensional and simple. And this character was very complex and interesting and well-defined. But the movie didn't follow suit. And that was disappointing. So what would you, I mean, how would you have done that differently? You know, I don't know because I don't know the story well enough, but I can only, I can't, I really can't wrap my head around the idea that this was just a like, we're out to get him type of story. I mean, like they, they go into this sort of profile that he fits this, you know, lone bomber, uh, white male that's lonely and lives with his mother and, you know. I just feel like they could have explored that in maybe a little bit more of a detailed way maybe before any of this stuff happens. I mean, they sort of like comically go through his his earlier jobs and, you know, the the uh, the teacher or the principal or headmaster or dean or whoever he was that eventually kind of tips the FBI off to, you know, some warning signs that Richard Jewell may have had. You know, that that job that he had and that the kind of firing that he goes through with that boss was was an opening scene of the movie that I think was intended to be funny. And maybe it shouldn't have been. Maybe that's a scene that we should have been like, God, this guy really should be fired. He 
is a little crazy. Like, what yeah. is what? You know what I mean? Instead, it was treated with too much irreverence, and I just think that hurt maybe that any chance that this movie had to at least I don't it. I, to me, it was just too like glamorous. Like, this is Richard Jewell, a hero. Like, let's just watch what a good guy he is and you'll show you who the bad guys are right away so there's no questions and we're gonna really you know highlight the fact that this guy did an amazing thing and i feel like you can still do that but you don't have to you know lay it all out for us the reason i asked that was because this film was has gone through a different um a lot of different iterations different people playing the lead roles different directors you know initially it was supposed to star jonah hill as uh richard jewell Oh, with actually Leo in the Sam Rockwell role, interestingly enough. I don't know. I, that was new information to me. But uh, Directed then, by Scorsese? God, I would have seen that. Uh, but actually Paul Greengrass was attached. Um, oh, of course he was. <laughs> and then Ezra Edelman, who directed, of course, the O.J. Made yeah, in America. OJ. And then David O. Russell. So, you know, I mean, obviously those are rumors and people get attached and, you know, leave projects all the time. But I do yeah. think it's interesting, um, you know, Spielberg was pretty closely linked, to, was developing American Sniper and then, you know, left the project and quickly Sam, Clint Eastwood jumped on board. And it's interesting that, like, Eastwood kind of grabs these shovel-ready projects and, and yeah, just jumps no, into no them. no pre-production. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting. I mean, to me, I think the cast is is very good. Um, you know, at least the, the, the top three roles. But I, I, I just... You know where I guess that's my main problem with Eastwood is that I just he makes so many movies and 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 sometimes when they're good they're like a little surprising you know and they're nice and it's like something it's nice to watch at home when you know not much is going on but when you go to a theater for a mo- for something you know I feel like I want to see some choices you know I want to see some bold filmmaking and and that's that there was no bold filmmaking in this film and I so don't I know I, that he I don't does know, that ever. I mean, really, yeah, very maybe, few maybe occasions. I mean, even American Sniper, I don't feel like did that. And you no, made that no. point that they really kind of, you know, highlight the heroism of, of Chris Kyle. And But I'm just kind of scrolling through his stretch here. And this, it, I mean, Unforgiven is bold. Unforgiven is so, bold, yeah. So we got to go back 30 years. I mean. I really um, like the uh, Iger sanction, which uh, I don't. I expect anybody will will know, but if you're what the you're, fuck? if you're interested in some uh, nostalgic kind of filmmaking, go back to that one. That was like the third movie he ever directed. The Iger Sanction, 1975. Oh yeah, baby. Um, yeah, I mean, look, like I I guess it's you know for better or worse, he's not a bold filmmaker. Um, I think. Although I guess it is for worse because I'm looking at his best movies. Million Dollar Baby, I would argue, is bold, um, at least sure. in the storytelling. And yeah, I, think yeah. change, I think Changeling is. Way. I think Unforgiven mm-hmm. is. Yeah. So, so maybe it is for worse. I mean, I think you know maybe when he is a little bit more bold, then he, you know, makes better movies. Grand Torino, you could argue, is bold. I hate that movie, but I think a lot of people liked it. Anyway, um, what else you got? We got. How are we looking on time? We're at like 43. We could probably move on in a second. Okay. So let's wait a second. No. <laughs> Silence. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> so, I mean, so Lee, where do you come? Like, I feel like now that there's just the two of us, we have, we have to leave this podcast knowing exactly. Yeah. If so, we like this I mean, you guys, you guys know what I was, I was sort of the, uh, the outlier here when we were talking about going to see this movie. I wasn't really on board but you know I'm always interested in an Eastwood movie and I sort of left with it meeting my expectations I, I think it's a, a C movie um, Oof. certainly has a, high, a, a highlight performance absolutely I think Paul Walter Hauser is, is really great in this movie uh, so that was a takeaway um, but this was kind of what I expected um, and that's unfortunate because I I was a huge fan of Clint Eastwood in the early 2000s um, into this most recent decade, I would see everything he did. Even when he was cranking out two movies a year, I was always excited about it. And I, I would say that absolutely has faded in the past few years. 
How about Shame. you? Yeah, no. Um, I, honestly, I thought it was fine. If you were to turn this movie on, you know, you find it. It's one of those movies you watch on HBO, you know, on a Sunday yep. when you're when you're sick, yep. and it's oh yeah, that was that was all right. I'll watch that again. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's not it's not worth. I think going out to the theater with and 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 you know like in these days when uh you know we're we're on limited podcast time because there's a baby coming I, you know I w- I wish we had done something else I wish we had done yeah. a movie that would provoke a little more thoughtfulness and and conversation from us but you know here we are Can we get serious now Captain We've all heard about the computer simulations and now we are watching actual sims but I can't quite believe you still have not taken into account the human factor. Human piloted simulations show that you could make it back to the airport. No, they don't. These pilots were not behaving like human beings, like people who are experiencing this for the first time. Well, they may not be reacting like you did. Immediately after the bird strike, they are turning back for the airport, just as in the computer sims, correct? That is correct. They obviously knew the turn and exactly what heading to fly. They did not run a check. They did not switch on the APU. They had all the same parameters that you faced. No one warned us. No one said you were going to lose both engines at a lower altitude than any jet in history. But be cool. Just make a left turn for LaGuardia like you're going back to pick up the milk. This was dual engine loss at 2,800 feet, followed by an immediate water landing with 155 souls on board. No one has ever trained for an incident like that. No one. Top five performances in Clint Eastwood movies. I will say he does oftentimes get some good performances. I was scrolling through. This was um, kind of a difficult list to pile together. Can I ask Um, you something before we start? Sure. Did you, does Clint make any appearances on this list for you? He did not. Um, okay, so I would like to know if you can think off the top of your head what the best Clint directed Clint performance is. It's a good question. I mean, it's I would say off the top of my head, it's between two. It's either in Unforgiven or in Million Dollar Baby, mm. which I think are sort of obvious choices. I would lean towards Unforgiven, um, and I'm not sure why, but I'd have to think about it a little more. Mm-hmm. Did he make your list? He did not. Okay. I also left off this movie. Okay. Um, so just for the sake of keeping things interesting. So um, what do you got? Number fives. Let's kick it uh, off. Yeah, go ahead. All right. I'll go first. You Thanks. ranking yours? Um, <laughs> I mean, I just have a list, and yeah, I have a little bit ranking mine. <laughs> yeah, I was doing that too just a minute ago. I realized I had forgotten to do it. Um, all right, but my number five is Jeffrey Donovan in Changeling, uh, supporting oh. role. I really liked him in this. I, I I have had this theory since seeing this movie that he was paying homage to um, James Cromwell in L.A. Confidential, and nobody mm. has seemed to support that theory because they both do this on-again, off-again Irish accent as sort of a corrupt police officer in the 1950s LA and nobody seems to like see that connection um but that aside I think he's great in this movie I've seen him in some things since that I really didn't like him in although he is really good in um what is he he's in yeah what the hell is he plays somebody's like what god damn it Jeffrey Donovan he's no, I can't remember what it is now. He's in um he's part of like a group of people in now I gotta look him up. Just in it. what? Finish this. I sentence. can't remember what I can't remember what it is. Is That's this the part problem. of a group of people? Like what? No, what like in a movie. People? In a movie. Oh, he's with a group um, of people in a movie. Okay, the guy with the shirt. Oh, in Sicario. That's what yeah. It is. That's what I was gonna say. Like the yes. with a gun. You just said gun. In you Sicario. Should said, you should have said with a gun. Gun. Group of people. Yeah, sorry, that was so... I sounded like Richard Jewell there for a second. Um, yeah, he is really good in Sicario, although, but that aside, I've I've disliked him in a lot of things. Um, I mean, he was terrible in J. Edgar as, as Bobby Kennedy, right. um, but he's really good in Changeling, um, and I always remember that specific scene where he's telling Angelina Jolie that it's like, why would we keep looking for somebody we've already found, even though she insists that it's not her son? Uh, anyway... Long way to get there, J. 
Jeffrey Donovan, my number five. Okay. From Changeling. Well, so, I mean, so I, I... All of your picks. I hate having this on here. Because I, I, I was thinking about how much I fucking hate this movie, how bad this movie was. But I thought Leo was great in J. Edgar. Um so, so he's, my, he's mean, my number five. He's number my number five. But like, God, I hated that movie. Yeah, that it's was a, bad such movie. a bad movie. Yeah, it's a bad movie. You, you, me, and Tyson, I think, did the podcast on that back when that came out. And yeah. I think at the time, like, I this I remember this like oddly specifically on that podcast, sort of being happy with the performance and praising the performance. But then, like, a podcast or two later, like kicking myself for abandoning my uh you know thought process that it's not a great performance it's a great imitation and i don't know i haven't seen it since i've what had no reason how, to how do you know what how do you know what jay edgar is jay i don't edgar i don't like. and that's why i can't be sure how how i really feel about this performance but i remember liking it but then arguing with myself over it that year mm-hmm. when it came mm-hmm. to the fixies um, again, it's a movie I'd have to see again, but I don't know why I would because you're right, it's a bad movie. Um, and one that recently came up when we were talking about de-aging and stuff on uh, the Irishman podcast because right. they did do that well in that movie. Yeah, but with makeup, not digital effects, I don't think. Right. My number okay. four is Hilary Swank in Million Dollar Baby. Okay, that will be uh, my number four as well. Okay, and she... Did win the Oscar for this? Am I right? She did. Yep. Because she beat Annette Bening for the second time. That was her second Oscar. Yeah. Um, Just like this I is mean, my second scotch. Yeah, I have my second glass of wine since we started the podcast. It's my fourth tonight. Um, <laughs> uh, she's great in this movie. I mean, again, like I mentioned before, like this was a movie. I was like, how the hell is this movie going to be good? And among the many things that are good about it is her performance, and. As good as she is in a lot of things, although she's not in a lot of movies, this may be my favorite performance of hers. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to say that she loses herself in this role more than she does in Boys Don't Cry, but I can make the argument. Um, she really becomes this character in a sort of amazing way. And I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Uh, I remember listening to a podcast that was discussing Hillary Swank and... Um, Basically, their contention was that she's not a she's not a movie star, um, and I think they're right. Like she's right. she's more yeah, of no, a character actor, despite being you know a, a beautiful woman. She's she's like, I, and I and what I admire a lot about this performance is that she, it's it's very ugly in a way. Oh like yeah, she, you know totally. she's 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 dressed down. She doesn't look very good. Um, you know she's boxing. She's in sweats the whole time, and she embraces it. And she's got this like. You know, positivity doesn't radiate well necessarily for me in movies. Like, it's not something like that really resonates nicely. I think on film, but she does that in a really good way. She's got this really good attitude that you then. Well, it's like this dark positivity. It's like I don't even know if positivity is the right word for it. It's this determination. I think that she just has. Yeah, but but she's also she's. Despite like having a what seemingly is an awful life, and her yeah, uh, I forget. Didn't her mother come up on a podcast? Yeah, Margo once? Margo Martindale, Martindale was so com- good in it. Yeah, yeah, and and oh god, it's just heartbreaking. But she's just and she's got this. She lives this like you know kind of homey life, like eating you know soup out of a can in her like you know decrepit apartment, and and she's keeps she keeps it going, and. I don't know. I think that that's a hard thing to do as an actress. and so Yeah. All right. So that's your number four as well. Yeah. Uh, my number three, this is where I started getting tough for me, but I went with Morgan Freeman in Unforgiven. Mm. Um, and it was kind of a toss-up between this movie and Million Dollar Baby because I also think he's great in that, but I just wanted to keep the movies different. And I don't know. Morgan Freeman's been in how many of Clint Eastwood's movies. It was kind of impossible to leave him off this list. Um I don't Look, know, I know been in more than the two. Well, he was in Invictus. And, oh, right, of course. Um, yeah. I feel like he was in something else too, but uh, maybe not. Um, you know, look, I know I sort of you guys have given me some shit about my opinions of Unforgiven over the years. Like you don't I, like it? 
Well, I just I've just never been as high on it as you guys have. I mean, I've I've rewatched it since the last time that. you guys gave me crap about it, and I, I and it is a great point, movie yeah. for sure. And I think Morgan Freeman is amazing in this movie. And like, if you think back, like this is nineteen ninety, like no, no, I don't no, think ninety two. Ninety two. Still, the world hadn't quite realized how you know effortlessly well, amazing Morgan Freeman is. I think yeah. he had won an Oscar. Didn't he? Did he win for Driving Miss Daisy in 89? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. Um, I mean, and he was in Glory. And so, I mean, he'd had roles, I think. But, like, you know, he is he to me has always been just one of the most effortlessly amazing actors. Like, it just doesn't seem like he's even needs to put the work in. He's just great in everything he does. And I think Unforgiven is another example of it. He just kind of plays this role so perfectly. He's this perfect sidekick to Eastwood, who's a much more kind of obvious character, even though he always has, and especially in Westerns, always kind of has this soft-spoken, quiet way about him. His motives are so clear, whereas Freeman, you know, you get the hint that he, you get the idea that he doesn't totally, like, agree with what's going on. He's not really on board. He'd rather just be home with his wife. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think he just plays that really well in an understated way. So my number three, Morgan Freeman, little known actor. One of my favorites. Okay. Well, then mine will also be from Unforgiven Gene Hackman as little Bill. Yeah, that's a good one too. Um, Yeah. Listen, I, I think that my appreciation of... Um, of this film is more academic. You know, it's it it's not like a fun, you know, shoot 'em up western. It's you know, it's right. more a reflection on the genre in a way. But I I think it's really good and smart, and um, you know, it does have ideas and opinions. You know, unlike some of the other films we talked about of Eastwood's, and and I think you know, just having him play that. Eastwood play that role, which you and I discussed before we just now that in that like we, you know, think, I mean, he, he, I think he's great in this film, but, but, but Gene Hackman really has this sort of the standout performance and I love Gene Hackman. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sad he's retired. Um, and I think he's, he's great and very evil and funny in this film, which, um, is unusual. That's funny you said that. Like, I don't even know that I really noticed that he retired. I mean, of course I noticed he hasn't made a movie since 2004, but like I hadn't really put it together in my head and you're right. Like, God, that sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, that may even be a better pick for number three than, than Morgan Freeman. He's, I mean, I like, I immediately go to that final scene in the brothel, um, and think about how good he is kind of in that back and forth dialogue that Eastwood and him have together. Mm-hmm. Um, my number two, curious how you'll feel about this, but it is Sean Penn in Mystic River. <sighs> Big sigh. Big sigh. Yeah, I mean, God, I think this movie's overrated. I'm glad he didn't put um, Tim Robbins, who I think is genuinely I don't bad think, in the film. I do not think Oscar Tim Robbins is. Yes, and I don't think he's good in that. I also think Laura Linney is bad in it. I think actually Lawrence Fishburne Wait, it, and it, Kevin Bacon might be bad in it. <laughs> if she no shows to church, is she gonna? Is she gonna? If she no yeah, shows the work, she's gonna no show to church. <laughs> oh my god. Um, but okay, I mentioned that I didn't want to kind of just litter this podcast with, you know, I need to revisit this. But Mystic River may really be one that I need to rewatch and see how I feel. But I loved this movie when it came out. Um, and I absolutely loved this performance from Sean Penn. I you just do like think it because it's about the old neighborhood. It is about the old neighborhood. I mean, you know, that's down by the mystic is where me and Jeremy spent a lot of time growing up. Um, but, uh, well, I, while I really do question whether or not this movie will hold up for me, I don't really question whether or not Penn's performance will. I actually think this is genuinely an amazing performance and it, it's a, it's a, loud one and a scene chewing one. I mean, there's the very famous scene where he's screaming, is that my daughter in there? And I think that gets all the attention, but there's a lot about this performance that's actually really quiet. In fact, that character that he plays is very quiet and doesn't say much. And a lot is in his, you know, emoting in his mannerisms and things like that. And I think that's really what makes the performance. I think the kind of crying and blowing up and melodramatic scenes in this movie are good from him especially, but 
aren't really what makes the performance what it is. Hmm. Okay. Not to, safe to say, not on your list. Not on my list. Uh, my number three is Angelina jo- right? Jolet. Oh no, no, number three because I because you just did yours. That was he was your number three, wasn't he? No, our threes were Unforgiven. Oh right. No, my number two was Angelina Jolet and Changeling. Okay, that's my number one. Oh fuck. That's okay. I'm glad you have it on your list too, because I was sort of like, is this really my number one? But I think it is. I mean, wow. Oh my god, what's I, my number one? Holy shit. Okay, <laughs> you haven't you haven't even gotten there. <laughs> um, what what were you gonna say about it? Mm. I don't like her. Period. And I loved her in this. Um, I kind of feel the same way. Yeah, I don't know that I don't like her. I just really have no opinion of her. But I loved her in this. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I find her to be a very like self aware actress who like in a bad yeah, way. Like, way she, it just seems it, like yeah. she's always kind of performing and not really acting. And um, this was just like she just was completely absorbed. Which like, you know, going back to the one take Clinton thing, like I I wonder if um, I wonder if that's just you know some people. You know, you just it just you just click with with their system, and maybe I I don't see Angelina being someone who is quick to you know get to the point <laughs> um, right. in in life or as an actress. But maybe something some weird you know alchemy happened when the, those two got in a room, and 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 something wonderful happened. Because God, I think she's great in this. She's so good. And another. Not really to the extent of Hillary Swank in Million Dollar Baby, but another sort of ugly role. I mean, you know, this doesn't, you know, glamorize Angelina Jolie the way the literally the rest of the world and life does. Um, right. She's kind of like a overdressed housewife, right? As I recall. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and I mean, in the fifties, you know, she, you know, she has to make sure she's, you know done up when she goes out or what year what year does this take place i, I keep the, saying 50s it, but i think it's the it might 30s even, i think it's the 20s 1928 yeah so it's actually yeah. even longer ago um but yeah i don't know i mean look this is a this is a not an easy role to play either and i mean i i think it's surprise that there has to be an element of surprise here that this was uh something that angelina pulled off angelina Jolie pulled off so well um Maybe at least initially, maybe that factored into uh, how we felt about this performance. But it holds up. I mean, this is—it's really kind of amazing that this movie is not. This is like Clint Eastwood's Minority Report. Like, why don't more people think this is a great movie? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and a great performance from Angelina Jolie. This was nominated for three Oscars, uh, including Angelina Jolie. So at least she oh, got really? some credit. Oh, really? Oh, that's great. That's um, good. And then cinematography and art direction. Mm. Um, so at least she, it looks like she got a Golden Globe nom too. So at least she got some recognition for the performance. So that's good. Um, but yeah, this to me, again, the, like I said, the hard list to put together, but this was kind of the first performance that came to mind for me when it came to a Clint Eastwood movie. So I felt like that's where it should end up. But now I'm curious about your number one. Uh, okay. Well, what's your, oh, you already did it. Uh, yeah. My number one is Bradley Cooper and American Sniper. Okay, I so I really just couldn't remember this performance well enough to put it on my list. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, you know, like, I think Bradley Cooper has a bit of a renaissance, and I think it started with this movie. And obviously, there's a lot of political controversy around it, and, um, you know, uh, the film was a huge success. It just made a ton of money. I think it's like by far Clint Eastwood's biggest movie. But yeah, I just, I just think it's a good performance by him. Like it's a, um, it's a really, it just, it just kind of be, it just kind of made me rethink Bradley Cooper. And you know, I've been, I, I'm like you guys a little bit. I'm reluctant to sort of, you know, fall in love with him. But um, I, I, I just, he, he, Fix, you know, fixie winner. Yeah. He, uh, that's a good, so he, so I would argue, I know you are not as high on this movie and actually I've revisited it and it really, really does not hold up. But like Silver Linings Playbook was the movie where he sort of came around like for movie. me. I like that movie. Um, and that was Tyson you were referring to. Okay. But 
well, that's that's a movie that I revisited and couldn't even finish. It was <laughs> I felt like it was just not working anymore. But he's still really good in it. And that was 2012, 2013. He did American Hustle. 2014, he did American Sniper. So that really good three year stretch to kind of convince any naysayers that were around after the you know what he'd been doing, and then of course the Hangover movies, which I know none of us are fans of. But the rest of the world is. So I don't know. I mean, I think this he's an actor that clearly has proven himself at this point. Um, you know, I think American Sniper was a way better trailer than a movie. But um, mm-hmm. he was. Uh, from what I can remember, I liked him in it. Cool. All right. Uh, what do you think Jeremy's number one would have been? Sean Penn? I think we know oh, that. We just probably. probably can't reveal it. Well, I don't think we're going to go through his top five. I think we'll get his Richard Jewell thoughts. Yeah. Um, so that will wrap things up for this amazing special edition of the Get yeah, you, Your Film Fix you podcast. You didn't start your intro with, with that, so people, maybe I know, people tuned special. out, you know? They might have because they're like, this is just a regular one. This is a regular one. It's I only tune in for the amazing, incredible <laughs> ones. I end it with that. Yeah. So, so find out at the end whether or not this one was amazing. It's true. We don't really um, we don't know for a fact that it's going to be amazing when we start. So that's true. We're not even too too sure until we listen to it. Yeah. Um, tune in next week. I think uh, it's going to be me and Chapin again, assuming this uh, this baby decides to make an appearance and Jeremy gets tied up with that. Is but, ruining uh, the podcast. I know, but I think we're going to do bombshell which I'm really excited to see. Me too. Um, hopefully we get that out before Christmas time um, and we don't have too much of a hiatus. We do have some pending podcasts if we do have too long of a stretch without one, but we will work diligently to avoid any gaps. Uh, please let us know what you thought of Richard Jewell, what it, you know, what you uh, thought, uh, what you think of Clint Eastwood and his recent trend in movies. Email us at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. Facebook, Instagram, iTunes, all that. You guys well, you, get the drill. If you, you didn't get any yeah. voice me- voice memos this week, did you? The nope, email. I didn't. I think well, that would be a great idea. Let's do yeah. that. Come on, you got. We got these high quality phones. Record a nice recording of you saying a few words, and we'll respond to it. We'd love it. Yeah, we'll play it. On who's going to be the first to do that? I bet it's one of our friends who's a, also a listener. Um, yes, but you know, if you're not, because we know there's other people out there, we'd love to hear from you. So do it. We should if it's if somebody does it that we don't know, we should like send them something. Okay, so if we someone should offer who, something okay. up, if we, we can't give DVDs anymore because that's not a thing. If you've, if you have, if you send us a voice memo in response to this request, and you haven't texted Lee, Jeremy, or I <laughs> in the last six months, <laughs> we will send you. An awesome gift package. A copy of the gray area. Which will include a cop a DVD <laughs> copy of the gray area. You know what? It'll include through the, five, and through the woods. And through the woods. Five copies of the gray area. You know what? I'll send you a mates. box of a hundred gray area DVDs. I'll pay for shipping. You just have to send us a voice memo and you can we'll give them out to We'll also send you a good gift. Yeah. Oh, Lee. You son of a... <laughs> I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.